We all know that the Apostle Paul wrote several letters to first century churches that composed most of the New Testament. But did you know that there were also seven epistles that were written by Jesus himself? We are going to examine these seven letters to seven churches in this week's episode of Revelation Unveiled on Faith by Reason. Welcome to Faith by Reason. The website behind it all, as always, is faithbyreason.net. Hundreds of hours of study material there, blogs, podcasts, and video. And uh, we are continuing our examination of the book of Revelation. In the last uh, episode, we uh, took an examination of Revelation chapter 1, and we saw that the book of Revelation, which was the revelation of Jesus Christ, Jesus being revealed, and it was intended to uh, be received by seven churches in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. And we are going to begin looking at those those uh, seven letters, those seven churches, Revelation chapter 2 and 3 here. And it's very important. I think it's actually the most pertinent part of Revelation to modern Christians, to the church today. Because most of Revelation deals with the future, from Revelation chapter 4 all the way to the end, these are future events, things that haven't happened yet. However, Revelation chapter 2 and 3, the seven letters of seven churches, pertain, uh, contain rather doctrine from Jesus himself that we as Christians, as part of the church, should find, and, uh, should find absolutely useful. Uh, they are amazing letters with an incredible amount of depth, just an amazing amount of, of depth and just layer upon layer of meaning. These seven letters are like, I don't know if, if you were a kid, when did if your parents ever made you Kool-Aid or juice from concentrate, you know, you put a little bit into a glass or a pitcher and then add a bunch of water to it. And that small amount of the product would just become, again, gallons or quarts of of what you want, of what you plan to drink, and this is the same way with these seven letters, the seven churches. They're very short; there are only a few verses, uh, you know, five or six verses, seven or eight verses in, in some cases. Yet they are just packed. They're just they're concentrated knowledge and doctrine from Jesus. And you probably you'd expect no less from Jesus, who is the smartest person who ever walked the earth, and he's 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 God in the flesh. He was God in the flesh, and is still. God, as he sits on his throne, you would expect him to give a message that just had the maximum amount of impact. And these seven letters do. And it's interesting because we know all the letters of Paul, the letters to Corinth and to Ephesus, Galatia, Colossia, Philippi, and they're all great. And we, and we study them, but they were written by Paul. These were letters by Jesus. And you would think that letters from our savior, from the the person who initial, who initiated Christianity, would get more attention than they do, but they don't. They're probably the least studied epistles. In fact, I don't even think most people will consider these seven letters to be what they are, but epistles no different than Paul's letters. But the reason being that most churches just don't teach the book of Revelation. So we as a church in general miss out on this amazing message. But that's why we're here today. We're going to, we're going to look at them. We're going to examine them. And because they are so dense, because they are so packed with information and layers upon layers of of, of understanding each one of these um, letters to the churches each one of these short letters is going to encompass an entire broadcast of half an hour in fact in this first uh, broadcast we're just going to do an introduction we are just going to introduce these letters in this podcast i mean this excuse me, podcast i'm sorry i'm still in podcast mode in this episode because you know, they're just that amazing and and um worthy of study so just to lay out what I'm going to talk about, or how I'm going to talk about 
uh, talk through this introduction, there'll be two parts. The first part of this introductory episode will uh, go over the layers of application, the way that we should apply and understand these letters. And there are actually four levels of, of, of application. And then we're going to look at an outline of, of all the letters because all each one of the letters follows basically follows a, a, a preset outline and Jesus hits each one of these, these points in, um, in every letter. And again, each one of these points he hits in the letters are, are just, again, have just an amazing amount of depth to them. So it's going to be a lot of fun going through them. And I think it's going to be very relevatory, no pun intended, um, as we do this study. So let's just dive in and look at these, the four applications of these seven letters to seven churches. The uh, first level of application is what I call the historical or contemporary application. This That is to say that these letters were actually written to seven actual churches. These seven churches were real churches in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. So there was a really a city called Ephesus. There was a real city called Smyrna and Pergamos or Pergamum, depending on your translation. Um, there was really a, a real Thyatira, a real Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. These were actual cities, all of which contained first century churches, uh, most of which, most of whom were established by the Apostle Paul and Jesus' writing to these actual churches. Now, the first question you might have looking at these churches is, who are they? They seem pretty obscure. In fact, I would dare say that if it wasn't for Revelation chapter 2 and 3, most of us would have never heard of these churches. Sure, there are a couple of them that I have mentioned in the Bible. I mean, the most prominent one being uh, the church at Ephesus. We know Ephesus because, of course, we have Paul's letter to the Ephesian church um, that constitutes one of the books of the New Testament. And um, in the book of Acts, uh, Ephesus is mentioned, the Ephesian church is mentioned pretty prominently. It was one of Paul's most beloved churches. But other than that, the other churches are pretty obscure. I mean, if you read the book of Colossians very carefully, you will notice that Paul mentions Laodicea in a sentence where he tells the church at Colossae to uh, share this letter he wrote to them with the Laodiceans. And again, if you're uh, if you study the minutia of the book of Acts, Thyatira is mentioned briefly as one of the stops Paul made on, in his missionary journeys. But other than that, you would have never heard of the church at Smyrna or Pergamum or or Sardis or or Philadelphia. Why these churches? If if Jesus was trying to give the maximum impact, why didn't he dedicate these letters? Why didn't he write letters to some of the bigger churches? Ephesus is one of them, sure, but what about the rest? Why didn't he write a letter to the church at Jerusalem? That was the biggest, most influential church in the first century. They didn't get a letter. Or what about the church at Antioch or the church at Alexandria or the church at Corinth? These are all large, influential churches that Jesus did not write to. Why? Well, Jesus didn't do anything arbitrarily. That's not his nature. That's not the nature of God. There was a specific reason why these specific seven churches were chosen. And I believe they were chosen. And we'll, we'll find this out as we dive deeper. Because their individual situations, their problems, their commendations, the way they behaved really relate to all of us throughout history. All churches, all Christians throughout history struggle with or benefit from or are doing doing well or not doing so well in, some of, in many of the same areas as these seven churches. So, so these seven churches actually model the church at large as, as, as a body and as individuals. And if there were, and if he chose any other seven churches, that message would not be the same. It would not resonate with us the way it, it does with these seven churches. 
So what are the situations with these seven churches? Well, very briefly, the church at Ephesus is called the Loveless Church. It's a church that was strong on doctrine, but not very strong on love. Then you have Smyrna, which was a church that was being persecuted. They were the persecuted church. You have the uh, church at Pergamos, which was a church that was compromising with the world. You have the church at Thyatira, which is the church that embraced paganism and let paganism seep into and mix with the true message of Jesus. You have Sardis, which is the dead church, the church that looked alive from the outside, but when you looked inside, it was all dead. Then you have Philadelphia, the faithful church, the church that adhered to the mission and message of Jesus faithfully. And then finally, you have the church at Laodicea that was the lukewarm church, the church that wouldn't take a stand on anything, the church that was more concerned with its own wealth and comfort than on the true message of Jesus Christ. And again, these were the actual situations that these churches had historically back in the first century, and they will relate to all of us, as we'll see soon. In fact, let's go to the second level. The second level is what I call the church or the ecclesiastical level, the church level, the, the group level. Why is that an application? Because every church in history, and by church, I mean a you know group of people gathering together in, in a building or in a home, all every church has dealt with one or more of the situations that the seven churches in, in the first century um, dealt with. You've probably heard of some churches that have these situations, or maybe your actual church that you go to on Sundays has these situations. There are churches that are strong on doctrine, but are weak on love. There are certain churches where they just preach doctrine, doctrine, doctrine. There's nothing wrong with that. It's great. These churches know the Bible back and forth, forward and backwards. They know the Greek. They know the actual Hebrew and Aramaic. And you will not, these churches will not fall for a false prophet. If someone comes in preaching something that's remotely false, they will reject them immediately. And they're great with doctrine. They are on fire with the Bible. However, they're not doing that great with, with love. They're not doing that great with charity. Or as Chuck Missler would say, they were so busy doing the work of the king, they don't have time for the king. So they're not really into worship music and devotional time and, uh, and and giving of themselves to others. So they're just studying the Bible, but they're not going outside of their box to love others. And then you have churches that are being persecuted. There are churches physically being persecuted, not so much here in the West, but if you go to China, the church in China is, is furiously persecuted. You go to any church that exists in a predominantly Muslim Islamic country, like in Indonesia, in um, uh, countries in Africa, in Iran, in the Middle East, churches are being physically persecuted. People are being killed and jailed and beaten for in, in the name of Christ. Now here in the West, again, we don't quite have that problem yet. <laughs> We're not being physically persecuted, but we do suffer social persecution. Um, the church used to, it used to be a time not that long ago. I mean, like when I was a kid, which you know was a while back, but not that long ago in a, in a big picture, the church was the center of the community. You know, every church, every town was built around the church. A church was where everyone went on Sunday. The pastor was a was a place people was a person people went to when they had problems. The church is where people would go when they had when they needed refuge. But nowadays, it's the exact opposite. A the church is considered a place of bigotry, of homophobia, of they're considered anti-woman, anti-science. They're just a bunch of idiots going to this place of, to worship their make-believe God and just um, you know, eschew real science and just be bigoted and hate anyone who doesn't agree with the Bible. That's what the church is now. The church is looked at negatively. 
And in society, again, the church is no longer the pillar of the community. The church is now the place where the bigoted, ignorant people go. So we suffer that 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 kind of social persecution. We'll talk about that more when we get to um, to the church at, at, at Smyrna. And then there's also churches that compromise with the world. And maybe your church does this, but we've all we all know churches that compromise with the world that they bring worldly music in the church. They, they want so much to be accepted by the world that they become like the world. And you hear that their worship music sounds no different than songs you hear on the radio and the way they conduct their 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 affairs in church look just like the world. I mean, if you were to walk into the church, it looks no different than any other worldly country club it's just about they want so much to be like the world to be accepted by the world to be seeker sensitive to conform to what the world wants as opposed to conforming to what jesus wants and we find that in a lot of churches then there are churches that embrace paganism and it's not when i say paganism i'm not talking about churches that outright are worshiping the devil that have like you know a pentagram on the on the floor and you know the uh, picture of satan with horns and a pitchfork um, on on the ceiling, but they embrace new age theology, which isn't there's nothing new about the new age. It's just old paganism in 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 a, in a new package. But there are churches that do the whole positive thinking thing, and that if you think really well, then good things will happen to you. If you, if you put positive thoughts out into the universe, and positive things will come back to you, folks. That is outright paganism. There is nothing Christian about that whole wish fulfillment, positive thinking stuff. And of course. There's nothing wrong with having positive thoughts, but thinking that you are going to affect the universe at large by the way you think, there's nothing Christian about that. That is 100% pagan. And then you have churches that are dead, like the church at Sardis. The churches that when you when you walk into the church, you know, it, it looks great. I mean, everything is nice and shiny and new and, you know, the all, all the pews are well maintained and the people there seem very nice and humble and you know the women don't wear their dresses above their ankles, and the the men seem like you know they're they're just nice, gentle guys. And but there's 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 no growth there. It's dead theology. They are so caught up in legalism and doing everything according to the letter of the law, whatever they might believe that is. That there is that they're so constrained and so stringent that the Holy Spirit can't move within those churches because there's there's just no growth there. They are dead. You walk into the church. And it's just cold and dead, even though it looks like it's alive, like it should be this grand building. There's just nothing going on there. There's there's there, there's no there's no fire in this churches at all. Then hope we all have churches or we've all seen churches that are on fire for God. Hopefully that's your church. Churches that embrace the mission and message of Jesus that are faithful to that mission and message. And, you know, they're going out, they're winning souls to Christ. They're teaching the Bible the right way. They're growing and they're vibrant. And you, and when you walk into a church like that, you can feel it. Unfortunately, those kind of churches are fewer and far between. And then lastly, we all have no churches that are lukewarm, that will not take a stand on anything, that God forbid they ever do a message about gay marriage. Oh, no, 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 no. We won't. You want to talk about that. We'd rather just, um, you know, I know the Bible says that gay is, being gay is wrong and gay marriage is wrong, but you know, who are we to judge? You know, how, who are we to say what's right and what's wrong? You know, God doesn't judge. And, and they have that attitude. And you find that a lot with these so-called emergent churches, with a lot of these emergent pastors who don't believe that God can ever judge anyone, that God just wants you to be healthy and happy and nothing else. And God forbid, no pun intended, that, you know, he actually... Uh, judge a sin. Oh, no, no, no. We want to be comfortable. We want to be wealthy. If you believe in God hard enough, then you'll have all the money you ever wanted and you'll be, you know, driving your Mercedes or your Rolls Royce 
and they just want to be comfortable. They don't want to take a stand. They don't want to take a stand for Jesus. They don't want to take a stand for anything socially. They're just lukewarm. They're neither hot nor cold. And we all know churches like that. So that is the, the, the second level, the ecclesiastic level. And we know that that level is intended because in, in each one of the letters, it, there's a salutation where Jesus said, let it, if you have he who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, plural. So these letters are intended for all of the churches. So the all of the first century churches were, were supposed to um, exchange letters. So the church at Ephesus, or at Ephesus got the same letter as the church at Smyrna and Thyatira and uh, Sardis and so forth and so on. So they all exchanged letters because all the churches had some of the same issues. And to this day, our day, all the all the churches have one or more of these um, same issues and situations. All right. So the third level is the personal level. Again, it says, "He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches." So here's my question: Do you have an ear? Well, then guess what? These seven letters apply to you because we all individually share one or more of the situations that the churches were going through. Um, many of us have the same situation as Ephesus, where we're strong on doctrine but weak on love. And I will tell you candidly that I share the the same situation as Ephesus. Doctrine is my thing. If you've spent any time on faithbyreason.net and have looked at, at, at you know what I've been doing for the last 10 years, I'm doctrine is my thing. I am strong on doctrine. I am constantly studying to make sure I'm getting I'm getting my doctrine right. I really want to help Christians have their doctrine straight, that their understanding of who God is, of what he is, of what his plan is. I want to make sure that you have that right. But I have to admit that I don't spend as much time as I should in devotion, where I'm just communing with God, just talking with Jesus. I don't do that as much as, as I should. I'm so busy studying about God that I don't give enough time to God himself. And we talked about the persecution, just like certain in like the church of Smyrna. Many Christians, especially around the world, are suffering physical persecution. And here in the United States, in the West, we study, we suffer personal persecution. We are ostracized for our beliefs. And again, it wasn't always the case. Being a Christian used to be a positive thing. In fact, if you weren't a Christian, you were considered kind of out of the norm. Now it's the other way around, where if you are a Christian, then you're a fringe person that, you know, again, you don't believe in, in science. You don't, you're, you're against gays. You, you hate science. You, you, you're stupid. You're not educated. You don't, like, you don't want women to have rights to their own bodies, so forth and so on. These are all the things you're accused of if you are an individual Christian these days. It's you're you're out of touch with society. In fact, I ha I happen to live in a very secular, liberal part of the country, and I have to deal with this all the time. I was talking to a neighbor who, by her own admission, is very much into the new age stuff. And we were talking, and I happened to mention her. I mentioned to her, "Hey, you know what? I'm a Christian." And she looked at me. and She says, "Really?" And she had almost a look of pity in her eyes. And she said, "Wow, you 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 seem so nice and so intelligent." I mean, that's really what she said, not realizing what an insult she was giving me by basically implying that being a Christian means that you're mean and stupid. But that's what we have to deal with. I mean, it's, it's, it's really ridiculous. We all compromise with the world uh, to some degree. I'll admit I'm a, I do this as well. An example of that is I sometimes watch movies and TV shows, worldly movies and, and TV shows that I know I shouldn't be watching. As an example, there was a, a, a show that I watched through this year. It actually ended this year called Game of Thrones. Really good TV show. Well, the first six seasons were good. The last two were terrible. But it was it was a really good show. However, the show had a lot of nudity and sex on it. 
And that's something that I know as a Christian I should not be watching. However, I would compromise. I would just say, well, you know, yeah, it has too much nudity and too much sex, but it's a really well-written show. It's, you know, it's a really good show. That's why I'm watching it. That's a compromise, folks. And we all do the same things. We compromise in the world with the world in ways we shouldn't. We go to places we shouldn't go. We watch things we shouldn't watch. We say things we shouldn't say, and we justify it. We're compromising with the world because we believe that we can we can let a little bit of the world in and it not corrupt us. And that is not true. The Bible says explicitly that if you let a little bit of corruption in, it will corrupt everything. And many of us deal with paganism in our personal lives. I have a friend who is a Christian, and but she reads her horoscope every day, and she is into the whole positive thinking, like the the what's that book, The Secret, that uh, was you know popular, became popular on the Oprah Winfrey Show, where you can again think things into existence. And I confronted her about it, and she said, "Well, you know, I I believe in God still, and but I, I believe that God is like the whole universe, and if you put something out there to the universe and you pray to the universe, you're really praying to God and." the horoscope you know god put the stars in the heavens as just another way to guide us through life and which i think is nonsense but again she's a christian and she claims that you know it's okay to to embrace these paganistic uh, rituals and that's that's a bit extreme but there are some things that hit much closer to home for us that we do individually like christmas for example december 25th do you realize that the holiday we celebrate is christmas has virtually nothing to do with jesus that jesus was not born anywhere near december 25th and that all the trappings of Christmas have, have nothing to do with Jesus. December 25th is actually the birth date of Sol Invictus, the Roman sun god. That's the day we're celebrating. And all the trappings of Christmas, the Christmas tree, the mistletoe, the wreath, the Yule log, exchanging presents, tinsel, all that stuff is blatantly pagan. It's easily, it can be easily researched as pagan. None of it has anything to do with the birth of Christ. It's all blatantly pagan, but we accept it and we we just slap Jesus' name with a bunch of paganism and think that it's okay. And if you don't believe me, well, ask yourself one question. Did you celebrate Christmas last year? Yeah, you celebrated a pagan holiday. No matter how innocent your intentions were, it was still paganistic. Um, Many of us individually, we're, we're dead Christians. On the outside, we look alive. We go to church, we dress up nice, we sing all the hymns, and we just look like these wonderful, pious Christian families. But then you get home and the dad is on pornography and the wife is gossiping and uh, watching the real housewives of wherever and and you know and, and into all that kind of nonsense reading 50 shades of gray you know the kids are vape are on their vape pens smoking whatever but on the outside look at a great christian family but on the inside there's no life there there's no different from the world hopefully all of us have at least some area in our lives where we're like the Philadelphia church and we are on on mission and on message with Jesus and we are faithful to the real message and mission of Jesus. And just like the Laodicean church, all of us deal with being lukewarm, not wanting to take a stand. We don't want to rock the boat. You know, when when we're at work and people are talking about how how much they enjoyed their friend's gay marriage in in the wedding, Instead of coming out and saying, hey, you know what? That's not godly. You don't want to say anything. You, you just you don't want to rock the boat. You don't want to be you don't want to be ostracized by folks. So you don't want to take a stand. You won't take a stand on abortion. You, you'll say, well, you know, I know abortion is wrong, but, you know, it's, I guess a woman has a right to her own body. Both can't be true. You can't be in the middle. You, you can't both believe that life is precious and that it's okay to kill a life in the womb. You can't believe that homosexuality is a sin and also think it's okay as long as the two people love each other. But if you're lukewarm, you want to stay right in the middle there. You don't want to get anyone upset. 
you want to you just want to be comfortable we want comfort we'd rather have comfort than growth and we all deal with that in some areas of our lives okay and the fourth and last level is the most controversial level which means it's going to be the most fun for us and that is what i call the prophetic level and this is something that again is is controversial however i will say that i found that um, the majority of Bible commentators on the book of Revelation seem to agree with with, with this uh, final level. That doesn't mean it's right, by the way. Just because a bunch of Christian commentators agree on something doesn't mean it's right. I mean, there have been plenty of things that Christian commentators believed in the past that turned out not to be true. So that's not why you should believe it. You need to examine this for yourself and see if it really fits. But the prophetic level states this, that these seven letters in the order in which they are presented outline the history of the church in advance from the first century all the way up to our modern century our modern time rather and they each outline a different historic era in the church so the church at ephesus is the apostolic church of the of the first and second century where doctrine was very strong why because the, the the apostles were alive during most of this time and or the doctrine was fresh. So they were really strong on doctrine and getting doctrine right and making sure that false teachings didn't come in, but they did that to at the neglect of devotional time and charity and being loving. The the Church of Smyrna would represent the time of persecution. That would be the era during the um, uh, second, third, and fourth centuries in which the church was being persecuted furiously by the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire basically drove the church underground. They were killing Christians and torturing them. However, despite all that, the church actually grew. There's a saying that the the church was watered by the blood of the martyrs, which is kind of graphic, but it's true that the church flourished during this time, even though they were being horribly, brutally persecuted. And then after that, you'd have Pergamum would conform with the time of the medieval church from about the fourth, fifth century through the eighth century. This was the time when things changed completely for the church. Under the Roman Emperor Constantine, Christianity became legal. He legalized Christianity. So Christians went from being marginalized to actually being a big part of the empire. Uh, Constantine claimed himself to become a Christian. He favored Christians at court. And Christians went, again, from being marginalized to actually being prominent parts of society. And in doing so, they compromised with the world in order to be accepted because Christianity eventually became the official religion of of, of Rome and so you had Christians and pagans being forced to be together and the Christians compromised and anytime you mix good with evil evil always wins anytime you mix Christianity with paganism paganism will win we'll examine it when we get there which brings us to Thyatira which would which would coincide with the Roman church from about the 8th century to roughly the 14th 15th century this was a time when as I said paganism won when you, when you combine Christianity with paganism, paganism comes out on top, and that's really what Catholicism is. Catholicism is a mix of Christianity with old paganism, and the paganistic front, paganism wins out. If you mix water with poison, you're not going to get um, water that doesn't quench your thirst very well. You're going to get, you're just going to get poison that, that kills you a little bit slower, and that's what happened then. And of course, I know that when I get to that part, it's going to make Catholics who are listening very upset, but if it does may get you upset and you know, so be it you can take comfort in the fact that if uh, Thyatira is the um, is, is the um, the Catholic Church then 
the next church, Sardis, would have to be the Reformation church. And Sardis is one of two churches about which Jesus has absolutely nothing good to say. Sardis was a big failure. And Sardis would be the Reformation church from about the 14th, 15th century to roughly the 17th uh, century. And that was a time, again, of the Reformation where a lot of good was done, but there was a lot of dead theology introduced and a lot of legalism that kept the church from growing, which will be followed next by the Church of Philadelphia, which would represent the missionary church or the Church of the Great Awakenings from the 17, um, from the 1700s to about uh, the mid, early mid uh, uh, 1900s, the mid 20th century. This was a time again of the Great Awakenings, where you had um, amazing preachers like uh, Jonathan Edwards and and Matthew Henry, who were who awakened who reawakened that dead church and thousands and tens of thousands of people came to Christ and they sent missionaries around the world and just tons of people were being saved. It was just like a really, a really great time. America was founded in the midst of that and it was founded on Christian principles and this, and, and America grew and flourished um, um, under that, under those um, situ, under that situation. And you, and under the leadership of George Whitfield and, and John Wesley, well, slavery was abolished and it was, it was, it was actually a, a positive time. But then that was followed, would have to be followed by the Laodicean church, the lukewarm, comfortable church that would start around the mid 20th century to today. That's our postmodern church. Um, that is a church, again, that refuses to take a stand, which is where we are now. Our, our church doesn't want to take a stand. We just want to be, we don't want to be considered the evil bigots that the secularists say we are. So we, we're just going to present this soft, non judgmental, weak, meek, and mild Jesus who just loves everyone and doesn't judge sin and, and doesn't have anything strong to say. We just, we just want to be loving. We just, there's, there's no judgment. There's all love. We just want to keep our comfort. We want to keep our wealth. We, we want to just be nice and rich and fat and happy and comfortable. And God forbid we actually teach the gospel. We actually teach about sin and justice. Nope, we don't do that. We're just a bunch of cowards. That's the emergent church and that we're in a postmodern church we're currently in. Okay, I, I am, I'm at 29 minutes. I'm definitely going to go over, so sorry about that. I'm gonna, it's going to be a little more than 30 minutes. Apologize. Apologies for that. But let's wrap it up by looking at an outline of, of, the, of the letters, to the, the seven letters to the seven churches, because they all fit a, a specific outline. I'm going to go over it pretty quickly, and obviously it'll be pretty evident when, when we actually go through the letters. So each letter starts with a, um, a greeting. Jesus says to the angel of the... Of, of the of the church at wherever and that angel does not necessarily mean a supernatural being angel or angelos is greek for messenger it simply means the messenger of the church which doesn't necessarily mean a supernatural angel in, in, in all likelihood is actually the pastor of that church the the person who is in leader in a leadership position of that church he would be the person who would receive messages so to the messenger or pastor of the church that would be the first greeting and jesus would then greet them by giving a title of himself and jesus gave a different title of himself for each one of these letters. So there are seven different titles Jesus gives himself in these letters, and each one of those titles pertain to who Jesus is and also to that church's specific situation. And we'll dive into that. That's another one of the, 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 the layers of depth that we have. Um, and then he says in each letter, I know your works. So Jesus knows our works. He knows the works of all the churches. And this is either very comforting or very scary, depending on what your works are. If you have good works, awesome. If you have not so good works, then you probably don't like the fact that Jesus knows your works. But he says that to each church. Then Jesus gives a progress report or a report card or a progress report is actually more accurate, where he talks about the things that the churches are doing well and and 
things are doing not so well. So he says, you know, I know what you, I know your works. Here's where you're excelling. Here's where you should, you're doing great. And here's where you're not doing so great. Here's where you need to improve. And what's interesting is that there are two churches that aren't doing anything wrong. They're doing great. They're doing nothing wrong. But then there are also two churches that aren't doing anything well. They're doing all bad. And what's even more interesting is that the churches that think they're doing uh, great are actually not doing so great. And the churches that think they're doing poorly actually are doing better than they thought. So we, we often have, as a church and as a people, a skewed um, perspective of, of, of reality. And Jesus points that out in these letters. Now then he does, Jesus gives admonitions, corrections, and consequences. So for the churches that are doing well, he admon- he gives them like, positive admonitions to, you know, keep it up and you'll, you know, and you'll be rewarded. To the churches that are not doing well, he tells them how to correct. Here's what you need to do to correct course and get back on track. And he tells them that if they don't correct course, if they don't get back on track, if they don't get their act together, then there will be consequences. There will be judgment. And Jesus says what these judgments are going to be. Uh, then he ends the letter with a promise to the overcomer. He says, you know, to he who overcomes, basically to those who handle their situations well and or who who overcome whatever the problem is, he there will be a reward for them um, in, in heaven or in the millennium um, or in the new Jerusalem. He promises a reward. And each one of those rewards are also very specific. There's seven different rewards. And each one of those rewards are specific to that church. And, and diving into those, it just reveals a ton of information that we'll, we'll uh, go over. And then he ends it with a salutation. Every letter ends with, he who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So here's something really interesting. In the promise of the overcomer and the salutation, in the first three letters, the, salu- the promise to the overcomer actually happens after the salutation, almost as an afterthought. Jesus finishes the letter and he says, oh, by the way, he who overcomes gets X. But in the last four letters to the last four churches, the promise to the overcomer is in the body of the letter. He says, here's what you need to do to overcome. Here's, here's what you'll get if you overcome. And then he ends the letter. Some commentators, and, I, and I'm on board with this, believe that that means that the those last four churches are going to be around at the time of, of the end, that these four churches will exist, that the churches at, at, um, at uh, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea will, will be around at the time that Jesus returns. And the first three churches won't be, that they are already done. That's why their promise is kind of an afterthought. Oh yeah, but if you do this, you'll, you'll overcome and you'll get this reward because it, it's already in the past. But when Jesus arrives, those um, four churches will still be around. Another reason to believe that is all four of those final churches get promises that have to do with either the time we call the tribulation or the time of judgment and reward immediately after the tribulation. In fact, the church at Thyatira is promised that if they don't get their act together, they're going to go into the tribulation. So that means they must be historically contemporary. That means that the Catholic church is still around. I'm pretty sure it will be. Uh, the church at Sardis is promised that if they don't get their act together, they're Jesus is going to come upon them as a thief. And if you read the books of Thess- book of Thessalonians, it it's basically says that people who are in the light will not be taken as a thief. Paul says that you, you are children of the light, therefore you will not be taken as a thief. Be, be, Jesus will not come upon you as a thief, but Jesus promises the church of Sardis that if they don't get their act together, they will be taken. Jesus will come upon them as a thief, meaning they will not be in the light. 
In fact, some people say that this means that the church at Sardis or people who have that doctrine will not be raptured. And I'm not going to get into the rapture here. There's a time and place for that after the, when we get to Revelation chapter four, we'll, I'll do a whole series on the rapture. And if you're really interested, you can go to the rapture category on faithbyreason.net. But that's, that's part of the promise to the consequences for the church of Sardis. It also says that the church of Sardis, so they might have their names blotted out of the book of life, which you, Again, the book of life is what will be read um, around the, at the time at the judgment seat of Christ. I'm sorry, at the um, at the great white throne judgment at the end of time. So, um, and the church of Philadelphia is actually promised to be kept out of the tribulation. So then again, that's obviously a an end times promise. And so yeah, so those four churches are given end times uh, prophecies about themselves, which means that they will probably be around during that time. So I think that's very very interesting. So as we explore these churches over the next seven podcasts, I'm sorry, seven podcasts, I'm sorry, I'm still in podcast mode. Over the next seven episodes, um, we'll go over them in that order. We will look, we will um, read the letter. We'll kind of break down what it means. We'll look at the church at, at that city and church in the contemporary first century uh, manner. We'll look at how what, how what they're going through applies to us as, a, as um, churches and as individuals. And then we will look at them from a prophetic level as to how that what happened in that church um, uh, uh, correlates to the historic era that that church encompasses. And yeah, that's how we'll do it. And then we'll you know do a wrap up after that. And then we'll move on to Revelation chapter four. But in the next podcast, I know I'm over maybe like 37 minutes. Um, in the next podcast, podcast, I'm so sorry. In the next episode, forgive me. We are going to start by looking at the church at Ephesus, the the church that was strong on doctrine, but weak on love. And we'll spend the next episode going over that, uh, followed obviously by, by Smyrna and Pergamum. And it's going to be a great time. I think, again, as I said, these next, the next two chapters, the next seven um, episodes are the, are the most practical, the most pertinent to us as Christians here in the 21st century, because there, there will be things here that we can apply to our own lives and to our own and to our current um, local churches. All right. So thank you for listening and watching. I appreciate it. Please subscribe to Faith by Reason. You can subscribe to it on the, via the YouTube channel where you subscribe and get the notifications. You can put your email address into faithbyreason.net in the uh, right navigation bar and you will get notified when uh, new episodes are up. And I appreciate it. Please uh, send me any comments. Yeah, I appreciate the comments. I appreciate the questions. And I will talk to you again next week when we start with the Church of Ephesus.